Once again, we welcome you back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome Elijah Gullett to the program. First time we've had him on. Elijah, I know you're a Young Voices contributor. Tell me just a little bit more about yourself and what you do. Yeah, um, so I recently graduated from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where I studied public policy and urban planning. And I've been engaged in research on a lot of issues surrounding housing and zoning policies, as well as a lot of regulatory policies. I'm also currently the branch leader for the American Conservation Coalition's uh, North Carolina uh, Eastern Branch. So, yeah. Well, you're staying busy, and I'm I'm looking at an amazing article that you wrote about how banning vape vape shops near church won't stop kids from vaping. And I I have to laugh at this just because I I saw a a very funny meme earlier this this week, and it was a photo of a cigarette. It says, new plant-based alternative could help kids stop vaping. And I was like, "Ah." (laughs) we've about come full circle. What's the the story behind this uh, desire to ban vape shops near churches? Yeah, so I think over the past few years, we've seen an increased interest in regulating the uh, e-cigarette or vaping markets. Uh, in particular, in the past few months, uh, the FDA has tried to completely take Juul, uh, one of the most prominent com- private companies in this field off the private market. Um, and this was stayed by a federal court judge, but this kind of coincides with a lot of other types of regulations that are going on at both the federal state and local levels and in this article i kind of focus on uh the state and local regulations that a lot of vape shop businesses face so in particular they have to go under go through a lot of special permitting requirements in order to start these businesses and then at the local level they're often faced with pretty restrictive uh zoning regulations that can make it difficult for them to run their businesses or may change uh, at, a, at a moment's notice, and they can no longer run their business the way they were before. I have to ask, why this special attention to, to vaping? I mean, I, I'm, I'm not going to pretend that, uh, you know, well, it's actually healthy for you, and you know, it gives you all your vitamins and minerals, but it just seems like there, there's so much attention focused on, on preventing specifically young people from vaping. Where does that come from? Yeah, no, I think it's a good question. Um, I think in a lot of ways, it's probably a lot of industry pressures. You know, this is a sort of up and coming uh, industry that actively competes with a lot of longstanding industries, including, say, tobacco and that kind of thing. Or even a lot of uh, these vape shops, for example, are often small businesses and they're going up against bigger corporations like CVS who also can sell the same vape products, right? I think that's sort of uh, a sort of public choice economics uh, in the more academic language of how business and industry use the state to punish their competitors. And I think that's what's happening here. Um, It is an interesting development. And, you know, especially when vaping is so much safer in many ways than cigarettes. It's interesting the amount of pressure it's getting. That was the next thing I wanted to ask you about was, is is vaping really that much more dangerous. I I only ask that because I have numerous friends and acquaintances who were one time, you know, tobacco smokers and found it Mm -hmm. very, very hard to quit. But the thing that made the biggest difference for many of them was by going to a vape, which allowed them to kind of wean themselves away from their tobacco habit. And, And all of them said it was a huge tool in helping them accomplish that. And, and I'm not sure why, why the need to take that tool away. 
yeah, I think a lot of Americans can sympathize with that. I know I myself can sympathize with that. Anyone who's known people who've made that transition from traditional cigarettes to e-cigarettes knows the benefits they can have. And I think it's really disappointing that we are putting that much pressure on this industry that's already doing a lot of benefits for a lot of Americans and just people across the globe who struggle with tobacco addictions and nicotine addictions. Well, and as you point out in your article, some of these restrictions really aren't even that, uh, they're, they're not fair in the sense that, okay, so vape shops, you can't set up shop anywhere, you know, this close to a church or this close to a school. But gas stations, you know, or convenience stores, they sell the same products and, you know, they're okay. It just seems like that's that's a, a big advantage to some with less advantage to others. That doesn't seem like a proper thing for government to be doing. Yes, definitely. And it was a really big focus, focal point of my article because I think a lot of people can feel sympathetic about, you know, zoning to not have vapes near kids for kids play. I think a lot of people may feel like personally that that's important. And I think it's also simultaneously important to recognize that we're doing this in an unfair way, that the state is uh, sort of playing its hand in a heavy way in the industry so that or companies like gas stations, CVS, Walgreens can all have their vapes and cigarette products and any other uh, traditional tobacco products sold. But these vape shops that are often run by, you know, first time entrepreneurs, small business people, they can't run their businesses in a fair way. No, and I've I've actually spent a little bit of time working in the retail sector, specifically at a convenience store, and I can tell you that uh, the amount of money that is made on tobacco and vape products, and as well as alcohol, I mean, it's it's all taxed to the hilt. But uh, that's those are huge money makers, at least for for convenience stores. Yes, definitely. And it kind of makes you wonder, like, you know, what are these small businesses going to do as these regulations become more common? What does this do for, you know, their, you know, these are also their personal incomes. You know, this is how they make money. And so we should be, you know, I think policy should take seriously what it means when we are taking away someone's income like this or making it difficult for them to run their business while we allow bigger corporations who aren't going to be as uh, hurt by these types of regulations or are explicitly even, and as I mentioned in the article, completely uh, omitted from these regulations. They're allowed to sell the same products because they're a big company, basically. What is the evidence that, uh, whether it be municipalities or legislatures, but where's the evidence that, that it's being cited to justify, you know, this kind of, of regulation and to, to make uh, vape products, you know, off limits or to make them that much harder to get? Is there, is there some kind of convincing evidence that, oh, this is so much more dangerous or are they standing on shaky ground? So in writing this article, I did a, you know, a review of the literature on this. And as it stands, it does seem to be a little mixed. There's some evidence from 2015 that suggests, however, that it doesn't actually make that much difference. Um, if a, a school, for example, is near a vape shop, uh, that there's other factors that tend to go into whether or not you know a, mi a minor is going to choose to purchase those products. And on top of that, I think another thing the policymakers are um, not taking seriously is that a lot of teenagers are gonna have friends who are old enough to still buy these products for them. And then that's a large portion of where student, where these uh, minors are still getting these products. And you're not actually getting at the heart of the problem with these regulations. You're just hurting these small businesses without necessarily the public health benefits we'd want. So is is this uh, just limited to certain corners of the country? Is this something that is is kind of widespread? Are, are we seeing this, you know, big cities and small towns alike? 
Yes. So that's the interesting thing is that this is sort of uh, the United States on a lot of policy issues is very patchwork. Uh, and this is, you know, no different. However, we are seeing an increasing number of both large cities uh, and rural and urban states uh, taking on a lot of these regulations. Um, in the article, I mentioned Utah as being particularly restrictive compared to a lot of other states. And this is, you know, this is true. And it's like not in particularly big city. You know, it's not even these big cities are necessarily doing this. It's across the state. Um, under usually through their departments of health and human services and it's increasing and it's turning and it sounds like the municipalities in many cases have kind of a free hand if they want to get even stricter than than the state level regulations the states pretty much tell them yeah go for it so the bigger question is does this does any of this really prevent kids from becoming addicted to nicotine or otherwise developing bad habits or is there a better way that this could be addressed yeah. Um, so as I mentioned, I definitely don't think this is getting the heart of the problem. If we're concerned about minors consuming these products, I think there's alternative, more targeted ways we can approach that problem without hurting small businesses in the process. I think direct interventions, educational programs that show why uh, nicotine is addictive and can be harmful is one way. But I think the other thing is, you know, a lot of the history of prohibition in the United States and elsewhere has shown that it often creates more harmful outcomes. And I think this is, you know, as we've seen over the past few years, so after the FDA banned the uh, fruit flavored vapes because they were worried it was, a, you know, sort of being advertised to minors, they were still getting these fruit flavored vapes, but they were getting them from the black market. And we needed to take that seriously and make sure that there's healthy avenues for, you know, for adults who are going to partake in this otherwise. Um, and it seems like there ought to be a way to do this without, you know, hurting some small businesses yes. while benefiting bigger businesses or other businesses. All right, we're we're talking yes. with Elijah Gullett, a Young Voices contributor from Raleigh, North Carolina. Elijah, I know that uh, you you do stay busy. You wear a number of different hats. Where can people follow your work? For that matter, where can they find you on social media? You can find me on Twitter at marketurbanist.com or not .com, sorry. Twitter. Market Urbanist? Okay. And, and are Market there, Urbanists with an S. Yes. With an S. Okay. And are, are there other uh, outlets that you write for? Uh, I write for some local area places like Click Carolina Journal, through the John Long Foundation, North Carolina. I've written for the Foundation for Economic Education. You can find my articles through there as well. Okay. Fantastic. Wow. That's some impressive organizations you're working with there. Thank you so much for being our guest today on Moving Forward with Young Voices. Thank you for having me. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Scott Cresswell to the program. Scott is a political commentator, a writer of history and current affairs, and a Young Voices contributor. And Scott, I'm sure I'm leaving a few things off here. Any gaps you want to fill in for us as to who you are and what you do? Well, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, I'm a political uh, commentator, a big, a big studier of history. I mean, I write mainly about how British government works, general elections, prime ministers, leadership. Those are my main areas of interest. Yeah, I'm looking at an article that you wrote for Comment Central, and 
you know, it's titled Britain Can Learn from Presidential Primaries When Electing Party Leaders. Now, um, mm. are we talking American presidential primaries? Are there other prime presidential primaries uh, from which uh, Britain could learn when it comes to electing its party leaders? I think that Britain can learn a lot, specifically from the American style of electing leaders, because as it currently stands, you know, we're in the middle of a, an election race for Conservative Party leader. And it's being chosen just by, a, you know, less than 1% of the public, just 160,000 members. And when you have such a small slice of the public voting, I think there is a great cry for people who want I say, I think that people, particularly as we're seeing the next prime minister, I think people want to have a say on what, on who leads the country and what sort of policies they're going to be offering over the next few years. Can you walk me through the process of how does Britain choose its uh, its political party leaders? And, and, and in particular, I'm curious, how, how does it uh, shut people out of the decision-making process? Well, uh, specifically for the Conservative Party, uh, since 1965, they've basically, uh, before that, they were basically selected by what was known as a magic circle. So only a select few people could choose who was going to be leader. But from 65 onwards, it changed. So Conservative MPs, these were people just elected to Parliament, had to say who was going to be the leader. But since the rules were changed only a few decades ago, there is now what is known as a party membership. This is a group of people who pay money to be members of the party and are then allowed to actually vote in leadership elections. As I said, this is a very small number of people who are actually entitled to vote. But as it currently stands... You know, the last general election in 2019, um, the Conservatives got nearly 14 million votes. However, we're only going to be seeing a tiny, tiny number of those people actually voting. And I believe that if you actually had a system with you know, so-called registered supporters, people who align themselves with the Conservative Party's beliefs and values, and if they were allowed to have a vote, I think that the new Prime Minister and new leader would be far more representative of the population. You know... I, I have to admit that that accountability among elected officials, that's something we struggle with in the United States as well. And and so mm. I'm, I'm watching with great interest the questions that you're asking here, because I, I think um, you've identified a problem that's uh, unique, not just to Great Britain, but also to uh, to other places as well. Talk to me about the American system and how you feel that uh, in some ways it, it might actually offer some some alternatives to to British voters. I think that the American system, and it does have its problem when it comes to accountability and how some voters are left out still, but I do think that with the British system, it's even worse. I think that it's okay if, in let's say, the Democratic or Republican primaries, if, you know, several million people can vote, but here you're, it's only, it's only left to... Uh, a few several hundred uh, hundred thousand people. I mean, the Labour Party may have more, but the Conservative Party still has it's still a tiny number, as is the Conservatives. Um, I just think that, I mean, polling has shown that you know Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak, the two candidates to succeed Johnson, they're not the candidates what the well, which the public want. I think that in in a primary system, you can. Uh, let voters choose who they want to be leaders. Because I think right now you've got a political class which is actually very distant from the voters. Amen to that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I totally agree. Um, what mm. are some of the unique um, 
aspects of the British system that uh, that enable those who are already part of the uh, the inner ring, for lack of a better phrase, to to control it. What are, are are there things that would have to be undone that would fly in the face of tradition, or is this just simply a matter of of clearing more pl- more spots at the table and inviting more voters to come and, and take their place at the table? I think that I think that a political party that is using you know such small pools of voters to choose leaders is a party that's living desperately in the past i mean that's why the conservative party changed it uh over five decades or nearly five decades ago um i think that but if they expand it i think as i said people have more of a say and i also think that people and leaders would be far more held to account and i think that you'd almost people would be far more connected to politics you'd have that local connection back again i think the criticism that many have of this system or might have of this system that you're just giving you're expanding the voting pool i think there's nothing really wrong with that i think that it's a progressive move towards further democracy and i think that any opportunity that the people have to say what they think and say what they believe in then i don't think there's anything wrong with that so as it stands right now, uh, what is the lay of the land in in Britain in terms of uh, who is the dominant party and and who, um, you know, who who would you like to see, you know, better represented? Is 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 the dominant party? Do, do they deserve to be dominant? Do do more people hold to that point of view, or is it just a matter of the right people in the right places, and that's how they they maintain their their power? I mean, it's a mixture of lots of different things. I mean, since 2010, the Conservative Party has been dominant in general elections and they currently have every right to be in government because they're, you know, they're elected with an 80-seat majority. Um, but I think that with the, uh, the Conservatives in particular, they've got, since 2010, they've got such a wide intake of people such as Sunak and Truss, both of whom were, I mean, politics before was you'd have to have a career going on for several decades. It seems that even sort of the, the babies, for lack of a better phrase, are getting a look in. Um, but, you know, uh, Sunak was Chancellor before um, he quit and this whole, this begun the spiral to take over as Prime Minister from Boris Johnson. And Sunak and uh, Trust came uh, very much as a, as a quick rise up to Foreign Secretary, and she's been in that position since the reshuffle late last year. Um, and I think out of the two of them, it seems it's, it's strange because we're currently members are being um, members are voting currently for the prime minister. You've just had the MPs voting, uh, and it's going to be strange because I think it's likely. I, in fact, I think it's almost certain that the next prime minister of Britain will be Liz Truss. But I do think that it will create parliamentary problems because uh, Rishi Sunak got support of thirty eight percent of his parliamentary colleagues, while um, Liz Truss only got 31. It's not the first time you've had such distance, but I think that, again, that's why I think that if you expand the, the voting base, then I think that I think that decisions taken over leadership will be far more... Um, I, think, I think they'd just be far more authentic of what people would want their politics to be. I think people would want to see the leaders they want in charge. We've got about one minute left here, Scott. I have to ask you, does the average voter in Great Britain feel as though their vote counts or do they feel that, uh, you know, it's just it's just lost in, in the masses? No, I think that a lot of people probably don't. I mean, 
this may not be true of uh, conservative voters, but a lot of people obviously think if they vote for minor parties, they're not going to get a say because we've got a first-past-the-post system, which means that the largest uh, two parties really dominate. Um, but I think a lot of people want to be involved in this contest, particularly those 14 million Tory voters. I mean, polling has shown that they're not too fond of Sunak and Trust. They'd rather have another candidate. Um, but I think that if you expanded the voting base in this, in this, you know, in such a way where the public are allowed to choose the next leader or prime minister, I think that politics would be far better. I think it would be more respected. I agree. I agree. Again, we're talking with Scott Cresswell. He is a Young Voices contributor. And Scott, where can people follow your writing and where can they find you on social media? Uh, my main page is on Twitter. That's uh, Scott Cresswell 8. Scott Cresswell 8. Um, and there you can find all of my articles, my reviews, and all of the tweets, which I regularly publish. All right. Scott, great to talk with you. I hope we get the chance to visit again soon. Thank you very much. Thank you. We are back on Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Danielle Zanzaleri, who is joining us. Uh, this is Danielle. This is your first time on the program. So tell us just a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what you do. Hi, um, thanks for having me here. I'm an assistant professor of economics at Seton Hall University. Uh, previously, I worked at the Federal Reserve as a financial economist. Then I worked at Citibank. Um, and did a lot of work in stress testing. Then I've gone back into academia, been a few places, and now I am back at my alma mater working on um, all different types of research related to regulation. Well, I'm looking at an article that you wrote for the centersquare.com and inquiring minds like mine want to know more. The title is that the passage of the CHIPS Act is not economically smart. And I know there's a lot of moving parts right now economically. There's a lot of stuff that seems a little tense, to, to put it mildly. I am not familiar with the CHIPS Act. Can you tell me a little bit about what that is and, and what that purports to do? Sure. Um, actually, it was just signed into law today. So I don't know if you actually knew that, but it just got signed into law today um, by President Biden. So the CHIPS Act is giving incentives to boost the manufacturing of semiconductors in the United States. And part of that is to deliver tax breaks for manu manufacturing companies in order to, again, produce within the boundaries of the United States, as well as $52 billion worth of um, subsidies. So just to basically encouragement. And, and the problem why it's not economically sound is because these companies don't need this extra money in order to produce here. Uh, many of these companies since the pandemic have actually begun the process of opening up manufacturing plants here, like in Ohio um, and other Midwestern states, because they realize they can't rely on other countries, specifically China is a big manufacturing company for semiconductor chips, and they can't just rely on them. So they already were planning on um, kind of diversifying where their manufacturing plants were. And they actually stopped during this effort uh, to get this act passed because they knew that money was on the line and, 
And they basically told politicians, hey, we don't have the money to finish this. We're not going to finish this without this money. Oh, man, that's... I, I'm a little, I'm, I'm skeptical. Maybe I shouldn't be, you know, but I'm skeptical when, when they do things like this. Um, now, I know that for, for years, China has been a major producer of semiconductors and, and computer chips. Um, I also know that we've seen some, some pretty interesting uh, supply chain uh, problems in the last few years. Is there any way that, uh, that these companies, particularly these U.S.-based companies, could make up for that production or shift to where they're producing more of their own um, their own chips without requiring government subsidies. I mean, could they make it in a free market, or is this just uh, are they just rent seeking because government's in the mood to hand out money? Hundred percent rent seeking here. Uh, they already had the incentive to do this. Like I said, they were limited by just producing in Asian countries that uh, politically they they can't control. That you know, if they shut down their country. Uh, conditions change, they can't get their product out. And so they knew that they had um, a little bit better understanding um, and influence truly on the laws here in order to produce the product here. So, you know, manufacturing in the United States allows them to kind of control it. Hey, we can leave our doors open, we can ship our product out with an ever increasing need for um, chips to perform pretty much everything between cars and computers. There is a huge incentive to be and and maintain uh, market share in this industry. For example, Intel is the world's largest uh, chip maker, uh, 164 billion dollars in uh, market cap, and they had made about 20 billion dollars a year, roughly, for the last couple of years. So they are a major, major player in this. And in fact, they're actually the largest chip maker in the world. So do they need actually help from the government to continue doing what their normal everyday business is? Absolutely not. And that's why this this whole act is not economically sound. If you want to encourage more chip production in the United States, what you'd want to do is actually hand the money to smaller companies and incentivize them to compete when there's more competition. This brings the prices down for everybody and especially for consumers. And that's not what this is. I mean, you could actually see that the CHIPS Act was passed today and who is Right next to President Biden, you have Texas Instruments CEO, you have Intel CEO, you have all these major CEOs, you know, big smiles on their face. Uh, but where is the little, uh, you know, company right there? And, and they're not. And that's not what this bill was intended for. And there's so much better uses for $52 billion. I love that you bring up competition. And to me, that's, Danielle, you've passed the test. That me, To me, that, that makes you a, a legitimate uh, you know, advocate of, of free market principles. And, and when, uh, as you mentioned in your article, if these subsidies are going to these big, already established companies, this just serves to, to further consolidate their market share. And, and you know, there's, there's still plenty of hoops and regulatory barriers that are going to prevent those young up-and-coming companies that could provide that competition from actually getting into the marketplace at all. Absolutely. And the funny thing about this, um, it's been touted as, hey, this is our way of not relying on China so much. Truth is, um, the silicon needed for semiconductor chips is not found everywhere in the world. And a majority of that is found in Asia, um, specifically China. And so we do still have to rely on China for that raw material. It's not that this bill at all changes that, right? This is, we don't produce silicone in the United States. It just is not in the ground here. So it's not really removing any reliance on one of those ingredients in that particular product. All it's doing is shifting manufacturing here. And that was already happening. 
Yeah, it's. I I can see where you know we've we've painted ourselves into a corner in the sense that all of this uh, chip manufacturing was outsourced for many many years. I see a great opportunity here, but Danielle, the the hard part here is what you're describing is to to really play a positive role. What government needs to do largely is get out of the way, regulatory wise. Is that likely to happen? They seem pretty fond of their power at this point. Uh, with all the recent uh, legislation just passed, I don't think they can get out of their way. They like to spend a lot of money, and there's a lot of really good lobbying organizations. The semiconductor industry has a very good one at that because the main beneficiaries of this policy are very, very large companies. Um not just in the United States, but in the world, you know, one of the ways that they can also promote competition is to, de you know, decrease some of the vertical um, integration laws, right? So companies like, let's just say Ford and GM, they need chips. I mean, everybody has seen in the news that car prices are really up. Why they have to pay a premium for chips or they're actually not even using as much chip power and they're foregoing some of the fancy electronics that consumers have wanted over the last few years. Well, you know, Ford has an incentive to, uh, you know, create or start out a semiconductor manufacturing firm because they are a primary user of this product. But because of vertical integration laws, you know, they have to be independent. That is one way, again, to increase the competition in the semiconductor manufacturing industry, um, as well as not do something related to spending, just cut regulation, and that can alone promote competition. Yeah, I know you quoted uh, Senator Bernie Sanders as, as calling this out and, and, and calling it out as, as corporate welfare or, or crony capitalism, as, as it might also be called. And it's not often that I agree with Bernie Sanders, but I'm, I'm nodding my head on this one and going, he's right. He's right to call you him know, out. Absolutely. And his, um, his quotes on this actually were fantastic. He called it crony capitalism at its finest. Um, this is not something that is helping the the small marginalized company or person in this country. This is completely for large companies that were already moving manufacturing into this country. Um, so all it is is a corporate handout. And this is just one of the few, or I shouldn't say few, the many economic um, bills recently passed that do not make economic sense. Okay, well, I'm I'm grateful for individuals like yourself, calling them out on it and offering some some I think very solid reasons why that uh, that money may be well intended, but it could be much better spent uh, in in other places and and frankly, more competition is needed, not less. Are there any other aspects as far as the um, the the chip supply? Are we starting to see a catch up? Because there for a while it sounded like this was driving a number of different shortages. You know, trucks sitting in in uh, repair yards waiting to be fixed because they lack a chip. Are we starting to see that supply crunch ease? Um, I'm not so sure in the short term, but I know that the forecast for the next um, year or two are that we're going to be producing a significantly more a significantly greater amount of chips. I actually saw a five-year forecast that said that the U.S. is going to be among the biggest manufacturers of chip production, um, even in just five years. So, as I mentioned, this bill is not starting that investment in U.S. manufacturing. This has already begun, and that's one of the reasons why, um, because private industry already did this and already laid the groundwork for this, that we will be 
very much catching up to China and be producing a lot more the next year or two. But in the short term, I'm I'm so sorry. I just can't answer that. Okay. No, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate your honesty. Again, we are talking with Danielle Zanzaleri, an assistant professor of economics at Seton Hall University and a contributor to Young Voices. Danielle, where can people follow your writing or follow you on social media? You can follow me on Twitter at dzanzaleri, um, D-Z-A-N-Z-A-L-A-R-I. I know it's confusing. On Twitter, I'm happy to engage and talk more about this there. Welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment of Moving Forward with Young Voices today. Happy to welcome Chris Schlock, who's a first-time guest on the program, a Young Voices contributor. And Chris, I'd appreciate it if you tell us just a little bit about yourself. Well, yeah, I'm uh, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, I just recently graduated from uh, the University of Texas at Austin, and um, I also recently started a uh, um, a job as um, well, an internship with USA Today as a fact checker. And I uh, um, also started Young Voices around the same time. So, um, yeah, I've just been uh, writing this summer and um, fact checking and uh, getting my foot into the media world. We actually have a really great topic or a, an article that you wrote for freethepeople.org that I'd like to, to discuss with you. but. I want to take a very quick detour and just talk just a little bit. Tell me what it is like to be a, a fact checker. What what kind of uh, what kind of things do you have to do on a day to day basis? Yeah, so um, usually the editors just send us uh, some art, an article or two, um, and um, I mean currently it's just me and um, a few other guys. Surprisingly, there's uh, another conservative fact checker. Um, um, it's um, and. Um, we just uh, go through each source um, in the article and um, um, try to try to find exactly where that source is in in the article they they linked and um, write um, write up a, a little um, like fact check sheet and you know um, say this is where I found it and uh, the source and um, it, it requires a lot of precision a lot of detail um, and and each individual little claim uh, made so. Okay. It takes a bit of my time. Well, I'm I'm actually kind of I'm tickled to to know somebody who is a fact checker. I I've always believed that they were out there somewhere, but I could never, you know, put my finger on. Well, are they real though? <laughs> but <laughs> apparently so. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about tariffs. You have an article here dependency on China is bad, but tariffs are worse. I don't think any person in their right mind would argue, "Hey, our economy is really healthy." Notice I said anybody in their right mind, but uh-huh. talk to me about the effect that tariffs, particularly, I guess, uh, what, since 2018, that's when, when Trump enacted a number of tariffs. What effect are tariffs having on our economy? Right. So, uh, since they were, um, since they were imposed, uh, there's, um, been about a 30 billion or some estimates say 40 billion, um, that, that us consumers and uh, the consumer technology industry have paid since then and in these past four years. And of course, we all know um, prices have rised, uh, especially with routers and cables, computers, um, cameras, household appliances, technology like that. And um, we've also lost um, about 245,000 jobs um, due to these tariffs. 
And it seems um, like the justification so, that Trump gave back in 2018 when he was imposing, I think it was the steel tariffs or, or whatever at that time, this is going to save U.S. jobs. Mm-hmm. Doesn't quite work that way, though, does it? No, and that, that's a common <laughs> argument used to justify tariffs. Um, you know, it, it, it always is cheaper um, um, to buy overseas and, and, you know, areas like technology. Um, we, we can't. We don't really um, have the means to produce that ourselves um, cheaply. Um, but one one argument that um, that I'm sympathetic to is uh, decreasing dependency on China because, of course, they're a bad actor on the world stage, and um, they could potentially be, you know, um, our adversary one day, and um, maybe a second Cold War. Um, so I think it's important to over time gradually decrease our dependency. But I don't think we can immediately do that. I don't think that's viable at the moment, especially with our economy and, um, you know, GDP following, falling um, 0.9 to, to negative 0.9% in this last quarter. Um, it's, um, yeah, we're, we're in desperate need of, uh, of uh, less government intervention at the moment. So, two quick follow-up questions. Number one, um, when you describe China as a bad actor, let's let's maybe give a couple of examples of, of what that looks like. And secondly, in what areas are we most dependent on China when it comes to, to manufacturing things? Yeah, um, so so China um, is a bad actor because well um, they imprison um, Uyghurs and um, and gulags uh, due to their religion, and uh, they're also made pretty clear that they want to to um, um, take over Taiwan. Um, and they're, they've, they've also been uh, spying on um, on multiple uh, on, on people in multiple countries through um, technology um, and, uh, you know, stealing um, stealing um, technology and, um, you know, things, things of that sort. And what was your other question again? And and, and- so the other question was, in what ways are we dependent on China or what areas are we most dependent on them? Yeah, so um, it would be technology and um, also uh, medicine. That's that's an important one. Ninety um, percent of our antibiotics um, come from Chinese firms. Um, that's that's a huge percentage. Eighty um, percent of the basic ingredients in um, in our drugs come from you know Chinese firms as well. Um, and also um, things like you know toys. We all know that, and we get a, you know most of our toys from from them, um, and like metals and and things like that. So I I think you lay out the problem here very well in the sense that look China isn't always acting under the purest of motives and 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 perhaps some could make the case well then that's why we need to keep these tariffs in place and put that economic pressure on them. You point out though that sometimes. You have to make pragmatic decisions that uh, that maybe aren't quite as as black and white. Do you want to walk us through why why pragmatically it makes sense to continue to trade with China? Well, I think pragmatically because we aren't at that point of the Cold War and um, our, our economy is um, hurting pretty bad. I and um, um, I know Biden was considering. Um, removing tariffs, and so I think this would be, you know, something that you could get on board with. And um, well, we we desperately need people that de- are, are hurting and desperately need, you know, some some help. Um, 
and um, we we can still decrease dependency on China. We just need to um, expand um, trade agreements and create new ones with um, other countries like Malaysia and, Tha and Thailand and uh, uh, Taiwan. And um, we can't do that um, immediately. That's going to be a gradual thing. Um, you know, make uh, manufacturing in our country more um, attractive, uh, investments in, in, in our country more attractive. Um, and so uh, tariffs are more of an immediate solution that didn't really solve the problem. Uh, dependency um, didn't really decrease all that much because um, the, the technology products that were affected by these tariffs, um, the, the, the amount of, that we actually imported decreased by 39%, um, but we also increased imports for, uh, for technology not impacted by those tariffs by 35%. So that's like a 4% difference, right? So we're, we're down to about two minutes here. Help me understand how, um, if we remove tariffs today, what's the difference that, that people would see? Would we, would we immediately see lower prices on some consumer goods with those tariffs gone? I think we would immediately see lower prices. Um, but um, then, then again, um, I, I, I still... Um, think that over time we need to um, increase uh, trade agreements with those other countries um, and slowly over time gradually uh, decouple our two economies. Um, but of course there are other things that we can do to you know to, to help you know people um, in this current economic condition. Um, we could definitely decrease spending. we can definitely um, do a lot of deregulation um, but only reason why I brought this up was because Biden was considering it um, in in the recent months. So, so we got about one minute left here, Chris. I have to ask you, where is the strongest opposition to removal of those tariffs coming from? I'm sure there there are those who oppose taking them away. Who who fights against it and why? Um, it seems like the strongest opposition to that today is from the the right. Um, there was some hesitancy um, among the left, um, but it seems like the right um, seems to have um, seems to to have thought, uh, made justifications for tariffs and um, um, adopt tariffs as a as a policy platform um, going forward. Okay, again, we're, we're talking with Chris Schlock. He is an opinion fellow for USA Today as well as a contributor for Young Voices. Um, I love hearing that message of, you know what, tariff, getting rid of tariffs would be a good thing. I hope it's something that, uh, that falls on the right ears. Chris, where can people follow your work? Where can they find you on social media? You can find me um, at Chris Schlock on, um, on Twitter. And uh, you can find me on USA Today as well. And spell your last name for those who are, are you know, just hearing it. S-C-H-L-A-K. Okay, got it. Chris, thanks so much for being our guest. Let's do this again. Thank you. Thank you.